This episode, I'm joined by Daniel Schwint to discuss his book, The Case Against the Modern World, a crash course in traditionalist thought, alongside discussions on Catholicism, liberalism, and traditionalism. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible, and if you would like to support Magic's podcast, or become part of the community, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. Okay, so Daniel Schwint, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, we are going to be discussing your book, which is one of um, quite a lot, uh, but it's your book, uh, The Case Against the Modern World, a crash course in traditionalist thought. So really this discussion will be about traditionalist thought, traditionalist authors, um, and how you know concepts such as liberalism, conservatism, democracy, how these are understood um, in traditionalist thought. Um, but before we jump in with that, just tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how how this, this book came about. Sure. Um, I am located in, in the United States, uh, central, uh, very centrally located in the United States rural area. So um, I'm not a credentialed academic. Um, I, I work fairly, I've worked fairly normal jobs uh, all of my life. I, I did you know, have aspirations early on. I thought that I wanted to be a a professor of philosophy. It it took precisely one graduate level course to uh, show me that that was decidedly not the case. Um, and so I I sort of abandoned that. Um, and uh, this this book, the case against the modern world, is is really. I suppose it just displays my way of of reading other books, um, and and that is really how it came about. Uh, I had published several other books prior um, in the in the in the years previous, but uh, this this book was really written without actually thinking about writing a book. It the way it is structured is uh, maybe a quote or a citation from another. Uh, author and my comments or elaboration added on and maybe connecting the dots and that's really the way that I that I read and try to commit things to memory and organize my notes and what was happening was I had really been trying to explore I had discovered traditionalist thought I had discovered writers like Rene Guénon uh, Frith Jeff Schwann and wanted to uh, sort of cover the range of thinkers who could be roughly grouped with them, or at least the range of ideas that would be typical of a quote traditionalist thinker. Uh, and so I was doing that, and I was I was gathering uh, different different authors together and my notes in that way and. When it was when I kind of stepped back and looked at it, I I had kind of a compendium already put together, and so I just uh, thought if I organized it a little bit into sections topically, that it could be published as that, and maybe be you know useful to someone else who just wanted to encounter these ideas and not necessarily read you know all of Julia Savola's body of work, which is a little bit daunting and you know, not always not always enjoyable. And so <laughs> this this format would give you a little bit of an idea of of the ideas and which authors you you might want to pursue to explore things uh, more deeply. Okay, are you a are you a full time author now? Or is this sort of a side thing? No, I I work um, in uh, marketing actually, and so I I write when I can. Um, there was uh, a time when I did try uh, to to move into writing full time, but uh, no, no. Now I I work a day job and I write it at night, and you know maybe when no one else is looking. <laughs> So do you mind if I ask why? What was it about the the sort of the undergraduate philosophy course where you just thought, nope, this isn't this isn't for me? Well, it just 
You know, James, in, in your in your book, you I believe at one point described a PhD as as an understanding that was a mile deep and an inch wide. Mm-hmm. And and you may not have meant that, you know, a, a, about every PhD or every academic who, you know, some of them have very, you can have very wide ranging insights and, and very wise thinkers. But um, I think to get the credential in most cases, you have to at least be able to um, narrow yourself and show that kind of, uh, I guess, within that constraint of, of going a mile deep and an inch wide. And, and, and there were just, there was just certain things about the mentality from talking to professors that um, I just, it it made it clear that I, that wasn't the home that I thought it was going to be for me. Uh, Not necessarily uh, a total condemnation against academia, academia, but uh, not, not my place. No. Yeah. I can, uh, I can sympathize with, with, you know, that feeling. Um, my sort of a lot of my later academia was distance learning so I didn't have to sort of take part I think I preferred it that way (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so before we jump in with the book I do have to ask you the hermetics question which is you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen in on the conversation who do you pick yeah so that was kind of a hard question because the the most significant thinkers in terms of of you know maybe writers who have influence me the most or you know those those few writers who you are not the same person after you finish reading them after you experience their work and and one was henry miller uh who was you know tropic of capricorn tropic of cancer after i read those uh in my late 20s that was that was huge um however i I feel like if i put henry miller in a room i would love to hear him talk but i don't know that anyone else would get any talking in Hmm. that that guy just had too much to say and um, you know, another one was Cormac McCarthy, who was huge um, when I went through all of his books. But, um, you know, I, I, I think I'd want to hear him if I put him in a room and, and I don't know who I'd want him to talk to. So, so as far as putting three, three thinkers in a room whose, whose conversation I would just love to, to, you know, be a fly on the wall, uh, I would say sort of the two the two big titans of the traditionalist school, if you want to call it that, uh, René Guénon and Frithjof Schwann. So those two, and then a, a contemporary, um, Jean Borella. Are you familiar with I'm him? Not, I'm not familiar with Borella, no. Okay. So he's, he's a, a French philosopher, um, theologian, and he he is sort of a traditionalist writer, but um, he has spent a lot of time critiquing uh, René Guénon's positions regarding Christianity. And he wrote a book called uh, Christ, the Original Mystery. And it's a very, very thick book, very dense, but it does an excellent job of sort of answering René Guénon's I guess, general dismissiveness towards Christianity. And from a Catholic point of view, it, it answers a lot of his objections. Um, René Guénon was, uh, like, like other, others in the traditionalist school, uh, seemed to be a little bit fixated on the East and an and East versus West type of dichotomy. I mean, they were all fairly universalist and, and showed uh, great insight into all the, the traditional religions, but it was always, you know, Hinduism is the most fully developed doctrine and, you know, pretty obvious condescension toward uh, Catholicism in particular um, as, as just not really having a metaphysics and being too sentimental um, so acknowledged as as a, one of the main traditional religions, but they would spend most of their time exploring Hinduism and maybe Islam. Uh, and so uh, having Jean Borella there uh, with his powerful mind, it would be a very interesting conversation to hear hear them them go back and forth because 
you know, reneging on was not challenged very, very frequently, at least not in any conversation that we have recorded. Hmm. So what, so is that, is that where you think that that conversation would immediately go to is to straight away challenge Barella would be challenging going on? Yes. Yes. I, I, I believe so because, um, that's just mostly because of, of Ganon and any, there, there's a couple conversations that, that are recorded and he kind of goes straight on the offensive. And, and since most of Borella's work has been, you know, correcting Ganon's excesses, um, I think that would be, uh, you know, not hostile, but, but very productive dialogue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about, uh, Thrift of Schwann, what, what do you, where do you, what do you think he would be commenting on in that 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 room? Uh, well, and so he was he was a Swiss thinker who, like Genon, you know, spent a lot of time uh, writing on comparative religion and eventually sort of settled uh, in Islam, and uh, he would be helpful because he sort of carried on uh, to a greater degree everything you know it came a little bit after Ginon and they were friends but after after Ginon passed away Schwann sort of wrote a book critiquing some of his ideas and uh things that he didn't really have a desire to do while while Ginon was alive and so I think just with with three of them together uh it would provide a very a very balanced and complete picture um and and you know some of it is is my own prejudiced interest uh, selecting Borella because I am Catholic, and one of the challenges for me dealing with all of these these writers was again that that slight dismissiveness towards Christianity as you know it's it's great it's legitimate its doctrines are very highly developed but and traditional but um, sort of insufficient from an initiatory and a metaphysical standpoint. Um, and, uh, it, what Borella's work did for me was, um, you know, being, being a, a committed Catholic and enjoying that doctrinal development, but also, you know, enjoying Ganon. There was always a little bit of friction moving back and forth. Uh, intellectually between Genon and Fritzschaff Schwann's writings and then, um, you know, the Catholicism, which I embrace. And, and I, I never really accepted the dismissiveness there, the condescension towards Christianity. But uh, again, I didn't quite have the tools and uh, theological equipment to reconcile them and to correct the uh, errors that were there. And uh, Barella did a fantastic job of sort of allowing me to synthesize the two and 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 be at home in, in sort of a coherent framework with all of those all of those authors. Okay, okay. Um, I'm sure those people. I mean, especially Gwenon will come back in uh, as as we sort of discuss traditionalism. Um, but we sort of have to start somewhere. And it seemed to me that, you know, reading reading through your book that the one of the sort of I guess you could call it like a node or an anchor where the discussion of traditionalism is always thinking back to or revolving around is the concept of liberalism or being a, a liberal or being <laughs> liberal, which is, you know, something which is a term which is thrown around today which I think basically becomes synonymous with just like, oh, they're liberal, they're a good person, or they're progressive, or whatever, whatever that means. But it's a bit of a empty statement these days. So why do you why do you think it is from your research that this term liberal has come to have such a wide range of meanings? And I guess you know what did it originally mean then for the traditionalists as well? Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason traditionalist thought and its in its critiques and and you know conceptual range has spent a lot of time on liberalism is because. Um, that sort of is, is I suppose, the core of mo- the modern mentality, modern political philosophies. Um, it's it, it and and the traditionalists will spend a lot of time, you know, picking things apart between the traditional world and the modern world. 
and or the traditional worlds and the modern world. And the modern world is characterized by liberalism. And so although it does seem to be kind of a, a drop in levels because liberalism isn't addressing itself to religion and metaphysics, it's it's doing it, you know, sort of in a negative way through it, the absence of, you know, a concern for uh, religion and metaphysics. And that was, of course, the reason it was being attacked, because um, traditionalist thought, you know, everything hinges on religion. And then if you remove religion from the, you know, the hierarchy uh, of the social body, then everything else falls apart. And so um, that's that's why, you know, we would seem to move from guys who were spent most of the time in, in doctrinal nuance uh, down to a, a political idea. Um, and so liberalism itself, yeah, it being so hard to, to pin down, and I think that's mostly because it is, I mean, the, the root liberty, I mean, the root meaning of the word liberty is, is one of those things that is, it has no real positive meaning, or it's difficult to populate with positive meaning. It can mean anything that the speaker means it to mean and um you know the absence of restraint uh, something like that and of course since most of the time it, it sets itself up as a as an opposition to something else to its opposite you know tyranny slavery of course everyone is for liberty and so you know everyone is for liberalism and so but but it remains vague it remains sort of meaningless. And that's why, I mean, I, I, I'm not precisely sure what liberal means, you know, there in the UK, for example, or elsewhere right now. I, I, I know that uh, here in the United States, we have, you know, it's, it's this two-party liberals versus conservatives. Um, and so here it's, it's the impression is that we have a liberal party and a conservative party in which we do not. And anyone who reads, you know, much history on the subject knows that. So that's not a earth shattering claim, but it just shows the, the flexibility of that term that here in the United States, we have liberalism and nothing else. We are a country, you know, that the declaration of independence is almost a plagiarization of John Locke. Uh, the father of liberalism. And so we are a liberal nation and we just have right liberals, left for liberals, liberals who prefer to, you know, be liberals in certain very limited ways and not in others. And, um, you know, two teams that act in that way. And, and so I think just the, the vagueness of the term and anytime you have a, a term that is almost impossible to define, uh, that is also pleasing, that it's going to it's going to cause trouble. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, the the, well, the impossibility of definition is sort of a, a you know contemporary Western trait, especially with words such as you know progress and things along these lines that that just get banded around as ways to sort of vaguely state that we're doing the right thing. But um, you know. Do you, do you, you know, as a religious person, do you see liberalism as, as, as becoming the new religion? Do you think it has its own myths and, and, and rituals? Do we worship it in the same way as, as we would, um, a sort of a hierarchical, uh, religious structure? Yes and no. Um, we do in the sense that, that, you know, that publicly speaking, all of the sentiments you know, if man is unavoidably religious and will express those those sentiments, those, you know, if he needs rituals, needs religious objects to show reverence to, and you can't just remove that from the public sphere. You you create a vacuum and those those impulses have to be directed somewhere. And what I you know, that's been described as a migration of of the sacred and so what has happened is that those those impulses and the old religious objects were removed, and so they've been targeted on secular objects. And so I guess it might be doing an injustice to religion to say that 
you know, the American flag is a religious object, but um, from from a certain point of view, yes, it is. It is treated, you know, with the same sentiments. Um, you know, the way you treat the object sort of makes it very clear what kinds of impulses you are acting on and, you know, the requirement of a prescribed posture when you are showing honor to this, to the flag, to this object uh, that outrages the population. If you do not adopt the prescribed posture beyond any, you know, beyond any rational level of outrage, um, the, the strict procedures that must be followed, you know, this object must be disposed of in a certain way. Anytime there's burial rites attached to a physical object, you know you're probably, you know, getting into the sphere of religion and not, uh, you know, just ordinary life. And and so, usually, you know, I'm using the flag as one example, but especially recently, you know, here in the United States, there was this storming of the Capitol. And now all of a sudden you see language from, you know, the left who usually stays as far as they, away as they can from religious terminology. Um, all of a sudden they're complaining that that these these people who stormed the Capitol desecrated the building, hmm. uh, desecrated. It's all over the highlight of uh, the headlines on the Internet. And. I mean, you know, desecrate, that is, by definition, disrespect to a sacred place or thing. And so, again, I, I, I guess in those ways, um, yeah, it is, it is sort of capitalizing on man's religious impulses, but, um, you know, directing them to secular objects. So then the, the problem really then for religious people, believers, um, is that, that isn't a true religion because there isn't actually any um, grace or divinity behind anything that's being said to be religious, right? Right, right. It, it co-opts the religious feeling so that, you know, when you're expressing those things in your daily life towards secular objects, then it feels odd to express them where they're supposed to be expressed. And, um, and religion becomes this, you, you move from, you know, the old, Greek hylomorphism, where man is is body and soul, and there is no such thing as a disembodied religion. Um, it must be, you know, it must have root and branch in the, you know, in the imminent world. And what you have, you know, now, and what the traditionalist complaint would be about liberal civilization with the separation of church and state, would be that um, religion is told, you know, stay within the heart of the believer. Um, it's a purely private affair. And religion religion just can't can't work that way. It it's not just soul. It can't be disembodied. Uh, and when you're forced to do that, it's very it's very confusing. It it sort of truncates your religious life um, in such a way that it is I suppose impotent. Uh, maybe not for you you know, in your in your prayer life, although, you know, I my position would be that, that, yes, it would be pretty limiting even, you know, for what you pursue internally, if you aren't able to express that in a communal sense. But um, and and so that's that's sort of where we are. Mm-hmm. So do you do you think liberalism overcomes those you know authentic religious experiences do do you think it organically they just fall away when you know liberalism moves into society or do you think liberalism actively wants to destroy and remove those you know authentic religious impulses i think that liberalism as far as the you know thomas jefferson was pretty specific about um you know hating the influence that the clergy has ever had on, you know, public policy and whatever rhetoric there has been in, you know, American history or in the history of, you know, post-enlightenment liberal philosophers about, you know, we're separating religion uh, from 
the state because we want religion to thrive, and this is a better way for religion to thrive, and it will have more influence on government if we separate it in this way. I think that that's mostly just rationalization in an attempt to not say, you know, what is really meant, which is a terror of religion as an actual potent social force, as as an authority that might actually be able to directly influence policy. Um, you know, some, I think it was Jefferson that said something to the effect that uh, the the priest has always and everywhere been the enemy of liberty. And so I don't really see how, how whatever else has been said about, you know, church and state separate so that the church can thrive. I think that that was just sort of a, a, a flattering justification that that seems to make sense to most people and gets them to buy it, because if if they had really said um, we want religion, you know, to express itself in our society as little as possible, that, um, you know, that wouldn't have been quite as popular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, and do you think um, that that move away from tradition is strictly correlated with the move away from divine authority? So as we move away from uh, tradition into liberalism, there is just a removal of tradition, or do you think those traditions are reappropriated in liberalism in some form? I mean, I, I, I definitely can't see much tradition these days, but I, you know, I'm wondering if, if you, it, do you think there's still some there, but it's just been a bit uh, mutated by liberalism, or do you think that liberalism just has nothing to do with tradition in that sense? Yeah, so I would say that the successes of liberalism, you know, are are always at the expense of tradition, which is tied up with divine authority. Uh, You're always moving away from from divine authority when liberalism is put in place. And I think think that, you know, maybe maybe something that should be mentioned as central or at the core of of liberalism, and the only way that any of it can make sense is is through individual individualism, which is, you know, just emphasis on the individual as as a self-contained unit, as opposed to the maybe, you know, more more traditional view that the individual is to some extent, you know, incomplete without uh, being in society uh, with others and cannot fulfill himself left to his own devices um, that that would have been absurd. Um, and so, and in, in, in order to, to, you know, have the traditional society where you pursue a common good that focuses on, you know, man's final end, which is uh, bliss. It, you, you have to have that divine authority and liberalism being, being individualistic, uh, it sort of makes makes all of that nonsensical, and um, so American individualism, in particular, just because it's been it's been talked about so much here by famous writers, and almost worshipped here, and that was one of the things that that struck uh, Tocqueville so much was the emphasis on individualism and how far that has been taken, um, and the you know. Directly to your question, I mean, he said that um, individualism, which which sort of encourages each individual to trust in themselves, or at least tr- tries to convince them, even though that's 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 very difficult to actually do. But um, Tocqueville said that that American individual and told each individualism told the individuals that they were, you know, the ultimate source of truth that they needed to trust themselves. First and foremost, you know, retreat into the ego, and that what this the the end result was to uh, train everyone mentally to sort of only accept what is immediately uh, understandable, sort of what is obvious, what is common sense, and this uh, his phrasing was that this gave Americans an invincible distaste for the supernatural, and so from his point of view, that liberal individualism led almost directly to materialism. Mm-hmm. So so at the same time, liberalism is trying to promote the idea that sort of we are all an individual God, 
but at the same time we're a god of a world where there isn't really anything that's actually divine that we just uh a material world which we are truly the the uh you know the controller of right right and and i think that you know to some extent it's not yeah, liberalism wouldn't say any of that and and you know most of the philosophers wouldn't say that but that's it's that's the result you know that's not part of the explicit philosophy but that is the outcome for sure and do you think do you think that's where that you know i mean i didn't actually see it as connecting to this question that i had until now but do you think that, that that's how this sort of contemporary attitude i mean if you think it it's it's just contemporary i mean i don't think it's been in history as much as it has now but this attitude that absolutely every single choice we make you know every part of our agency can in some way be connected to a political action or political choice you know i've joked before about you know buying the right vegetables if they're organic is a political choice driving the right car living in the right place having the right opinions absolutely every facet of our life now in the west at least can be seen as a political thing and do you think that that introduction of politics into daily life is that liberal control mechanism where you sort of think that you're truly in control because you're constantly making these choices, but actually they, they are really controlled by something else. Yes. And I think there's really something to that. I mean, when you sort of maybe don't explicitly exclude religion, but ignore it, um, then politics sort of becomes the thing that colors all of your actions uh, because, you know, they can't be, you know, just your religion, the way you live your life or your sort of values, um, the highest level of value are, you know, is, is a set of political ideas. And so everything has reference to that. And so it's, it's just not treated with the same distance. Um, you know, you can't step back from politics because politics is what, what's there. It's, it's the center of reference value. Um, you know, I think propaganda, too, has probably a big influence on that problem. Just just the technological society that we live in and the fact that everyone is, you know, bombarded 24 hours a day uh, with with these ideas and these value statements that ultimately have reference to the political, but um, just being subject to that. But uh, so that may not be, you know, maybe a consequence of liberal materialism, you know, working itself out by the development of those technologies, but sort of an an accidental consequence. Mm -hmm. And that sort of um, focus for liberalism on our common sense reality, even though the sort of contemporary pathways we've taken under liberalism i mean you you list sort of freud and darwin as two clear examples both you know darwin's theory of evolution where we sort of remove we a lot of our agency is lost to just this natural selection just this natural process we have no say in and then freud sort of completely decentens even our own minds you know what we believe is actually part of a layered psychological apparatus of subconscious and ego it etc um and do you think that these are sort of liberalism sort of latches onto these figures because they continually remove anything which might be a you know a higher level of understanding even if it isn't god it might be something such as like i, I you know i put in the question a life philosophy sort of a world view a a vitality something other than just an acceptance of you know a liberal containment where we go okay we're just at the whim of these material forces and so we best you know all that matters is this world now do you think that's why these thinkers especially have been have been sort of um, broadcast as the figureheads of liberalism oh yes yes um i think it was victor frankl said something to the effect that um the you know we're we're nihilists but our nihilism is not centered on you know nothingness it's centered on nothing butness and that's what everything expresses is, um, he said, I think not that the, you know, scientists, it's, the problem is not that the scientists are specializing, but that the specialists are generalizing. And, you know, that would be, you know, Freud, at least leading us to believe or people, you know, whether or not he said it explicitly, but that everything we do is based on, you know, libido. 
um, everything from, you know, your actions to your, your thoughts themselves. Um, and, you know, Descartes, uh, Tocqueville said that Americans, you know, America was the place where Descartes' ideas were least studied, but most thoroughly put into practice um, as far as everyone being you know, trusting in, in their own their own ego first and foremost and what they can perceive about it and, uh, you know, no external authority of any kind. Um, and so, you know, you could go all over the board picking out these thinkers who were sort of in, in every single area and at about the same time in history carrying out this nothing buttness. I mean, there's Martin Luther in the sphere of religion. I mean, what else are the, the solas? You know, scripture alone, faith alone. Those are statements of nothing butness. And so that is a, a kind of expression of nihilism in the religious sphere that we're going to make it as soon as, po- uh, as simple as possible by reduction. And, um, you know, Newton in physics. And so it just, it just, it goes on and on. And not just the ones that you, that you mentioned, you know, and back to, I uh, suppose, Locke, who uh, sort of did it in the political philosophy area as well. And, you know, then you get the United States sort of built on that. And that, you know, now it's sort of becoming clear to me as to why we're always compelled to, well, not so much myself, um, and I don't know about you, but compelled to defend democracy to our, you know, our dying breath. It is absolutely the the sort of the primary principle that apparently holds everything together. I think if if people want to try defend something that they're undertaking on a global or national scale, they always try get in the word that we need to defend democracy and uphold democracy. And you know, it now becomes clear to me that that's because democracy is the sort of illusion that everyone gets their own individual say. Um, but of course, that's not not entirely true. But um, you know, do you think there's any more to that, or do you think that's why? democracy is sort of liberalism's almost baby that they have to keep promoting. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, our discussion about the migration of the sacred, and I think democracy is sort of the the idea that is, you know, so I suppose the, the central gospel, um, you know, making the world safe for democracy is the secularized expression of you know, a gospel message of evangelism. And, you know, it, in a sense, these things are also, you know, unconscious. And that is also part of the problem with the migration of the religious impulse to sacred things is that you, you lose all accountability. You know, there's a sort of embarrassment when you do something violent or excessive in the name of religion. Um, and we all have sort of a healthy distaste for whenever that happens when you have unconsciously migrated those impulses to the sacred or the the secular you can get away with a lot more because you're you're not holding yourself accountable to anything and so your policies your your global ventures your interventions um you know it in in other ages where everything was done on the basis of, you know, an explicit religious motivation, you would have had to say, this is a crusade. But you don't. If you don't, you know, if, if you if there's no such thing as a crusade and no religious motivation for you. And so in a way you can get get by without ever having to admit to yourself that that that's the kind of person you are and that's what you're doing. Hmm. So de- so democracy is actually do you see it as quite forceful then that it it's making people believe something which is actually really to their detriment because it removes a lot. It actually removes more freedom than it could ever give. Mm-hmm. Well, and by casting off, you know, we talked about casting off divine authority and, you know, what what democracy tells this now individualized citizen who is more alone left to his own devices from a a mental standpoint, at least theoretically, and told, you know, our political structures, everything we do, every aspect of society involves you, and you therefore must be concerned about it. You know, I I don't think we realize, and even the first few times I read about it, it took a while for it to sink in how revolutionary that really was, that, that sense of feeling and 
having to sort of feel responsible for everything. And, you know, democracy tells me and, you know, you that you can't claim ignorance about global warming or, you know, vaccinations or the problem in the Middle East or uh, tax rates or anything like that. And, you know, some of us are more or less well read on maybe one or two of these things. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that there's only a few people in the United States, maybe in the world, that are that are capable of saying, actually, this is this is the general problem, you know, in these Middle Eastern areas. And here's, you know, the best way to deal with it uh, or not deal with it and so on and so forth. And, and just to to put those questions in front of the average person on the street and which again includes me in, in a lot of these questions i am the average person on the street and say that i need to pick a side that's very distressing to me and and you know i've i've learned to say no i won't but for the most part due to you know democracy being the highest moral value if you don't participate you that that is you know what in the religious sphere would be you know not going to church not voting is to neglect one of your highest duties and to sort of you know not care about life and about the common good you know so all of those things that would have been sort of religious participations um so i guess we've talked about uh sort of the idols of secular religion the flag the buildings but rituals would be to think as simple as voting um, which have massive consequences for the conscience of the person who does it. And so just the, the pressure that everyone feels is, you know, it, it's, it's, it starts off in flattery that you have the power to do this. You've, you're more empowered than any other, you know, citizen, any other member of any other society throughout history. You know, you should be so thankful. You're, you, you have it better than anyone else. And then you're presented with responsibility for these questions that you couldn't possibly answer. And so what happens is that you, you, you do exactly what the, I suppose, the peasant or someone would have done in the Middle Ages. You have to look to an outside authority. But instead of doing it consciously by acknowledging that this authority that you're looking for is the one responsible for these decisions, you end up turning on the television or scrolling your social media feed. And so you get your, you, you, you turn to all of these authorities sort of in a context of, of chaos and never once acknowledging that you actually, you know, are doing that. And so you absorb these opinions and then you, you sort of take them on as your own, even though you can't explain any of the reasoning behind them. And that's, that's sort of, what political platforms are in party politics is a set of opinions that no one else, no one, no adherent can really defend in any precise way. But, you know, those are all, those are my opinions and I'll die to defend them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to ask. Do you, do you consider yourself a traditionalist? Well, I suppose as far as the, the, the deepest identity, as far as, ideas and you know impulses i'd say i consider myself a catholic uh first and foremost as far as identity goes um and so there are i I would suppose i say i i give that say sometimes over you know anything that uh renee genon says Uh, i'll i'll take it with a grain of salt although i don't have to do that very often um so for the most part, yes, I do consider myself an exponent of the traditional school. I would say that I am a traditionalist, but you know, there, just like the dangers of of being involved in a political party, there's always problems with that. I mean, I don't want to really be grouped in with Julius Evola. Mm-hmm. I I do enjoy Julius Evola. Some of his stuff is is phenomenal. He's phenomenal in some areas, but there's a lot of places he goes that I don't really have much interest in following him. So. So there's 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 those problems, but um, I suppose for the most part, yeah, I, I'd say I'm an exponent of traditionalism. Hmm. 
And what about uh, democracy? If you don't mind me asking, do you, would you do you have a preferred sort of system? Do you think do you think other systems would become possible in the future? I think that you know if if one answer to that is that we should replace democracy with something else. You know, my my ideal, my romanticized ideal would be you know. Christendom of the Middle Ages, you know, some sort of modified feudalist structure. But would I transplant that here? And if I could, do I think that would work out very well? I mean, no, I think that would be catastrophic. Um, I don't think there's any chance of bringing that. However, you know, whatever its development was and however healthy it was, um, A, I probably don't, you know, have all the insights I need to know that. But it's, you know, wrapped up in the traditionalist view of history. And this I seems obvious to me, and I hold it, you know, as, as a certainty that history does not go from a, the Dark Ages to, you know, proceed along the lines of progress and everything gets better and mankind gets wiser and so on until we are just, you know, in some sort of utopia um which is sort of the universal view of history um the traditionalist view would turn that on its head we don't have evolution we have devolution things are going from perfection to chaos and destruction you know you start that's what all the religions teach anyway um which is you know surprising that 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 isn't often acknowledged that you start in the garden of eden you start in perfection. Everything is sort of put in place and ordered precisely as it should be. And then from there, it pretty much all goes downhill. And so this view that we are, you know, that I have it better than anyone else has at any other historical period is completely absurd in, in that context, in that general uh, understanding of the trajectory of history. And so the reason I sort of go off on that tangent is because democracy itself can pretty easily be envisioned as the most primitive form of government. You know, I think it was Eric von Kunov Leden said something like, you know, if if seven out of ten cavemen wanted to implement some policy, it's really easy to imagine them forcing the other three to do it, either by, you know, withholding food or just killing them or something along those lines. Um, and other anthropologists have said, you know, democracy is is actually one of the first phases. You know, it's not some new discovery. Uh, people have been talking about democracy since political philosophy was a thing. So uh, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that um, transplanting something from maybe way back in history that was appropriate to a more well-ordered phase in the unfolding of history um, to now when, according to the traditionalist view, uh, we're dealing with a different type of human being. Anthropology is not some sort of static thing. And so the type of person that you would be sort of imposing that order, although that order might be sort of in principle superior, uh, would be inappropriate and would never work. Um, you know, if, if modern people have turned to liberalism because they have lost the ability to sense the supernatural or, you know, anything beyond imminence, or uh, at least, you know, are only capable of dealing mostly with the material world, then, you know, putting divine authority back in place is, is going to be disastrous, mostly because the people that will be <clears throat> responsible for that, that level will be subject to the same conditions and and they will not do very well so i i i guess that's a that's a long way of saying i don't know that i have the answer um if things are if if entropy is increasing uh which i think that it is then there's probably not a really good answer except that you know things are going to probably continue to uh disintegrate and you know, if, if the cyclical view of history is correct, then we will sort of transition into some sort of a, a new order, but things might have to be reduced to their 
their lowest levels, uh, socially speaking, before we start to rebuild. And it would be very difficult to foresee what that rebuilding will look like. Okay. Okay. Um, is there anything you would like to add about your your book or your work that you, um, well, spe specifically this book or traditionalism, which um, you feel, feel we need to sort of add in to this conversation? Oh, I don't, I don't think I have anything, anything significant that, that is necessary. I mean, um, it's, it's largely a, a negative, you know, work in the sense of being so many points attacking the, the, I guess, the myths of the modern world. And in some places it does give, you know, the traditionalist view, but something that I do hope to do and that I am working on whether or not it will ever, you know, actually be published is the extension of that, that same book into something that is a little bit more comprehensive and a little bit more positive and, and adds, you know, maybe practice into the theory um, ways to live, live this out and not just make yourself an irrelevant person because right now if you read that book and even if you accepted everything you'd just be more alienated than you were when you started and that's not that's not necessary i don't feel that way and um it just it warrants about another you know another another few installments before it can it can be what i would like it to be are you, are you working on that now I, I am. It's, but right now it's a little bit, it's a little bit unwieldy. It's, it's right now the draft that I have of, of what might be that at some point is at 1500 pages long. The last time I sort of tried to gather it and collate it together. And so I, the, you know, I, well, for, for starters, I, I sort of stepped back from, trying to publish things publicly this case against the modern world was me sort of tapering off from an enthusiastic attempt to uh get my writing out there and um and and now i'm i'm appreciating traditional anonymity a little bit more um almost you know not just as something you accept but almost as an ideal and so i'm not in any hurry to publish anything at this time and so you know it I, I like the idea of doing it at some point uh but it would be it would be quite a project and and right now the it's mostly shown to family and for family and wh whereabouts can we purchase your your work that is all available on amazon.com right now so that that would really be the place it's it's self-published or the the there is one book that is through a, a small Catholic publishing house, but it, they still sell through Amazon.com. Just that's the kind of the way of the publishing world right now. <laughs> okay, um, that seems like a good place to uh, finish up. So, Daniel Swint, thanks very much. Thank you, James. I appreciate it.